You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. So the context of what we're looking at is that um, back in chapter 5, Paul said that we are to be filled with the Spirit, and he gave three evidences of of being animated, empowered by, uh, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, One was singing to him, which we just did. Uh, Another was to thank God in all things. And the final was to submit to one another. And after mentioning this sort of submission to one another, he then uh, walks through the household of the day. And so it was common in that day that there would be sort of household codes, is what they were called, where you would have a code of sort of behavior for all members of the household. And that's what he does. He does wives and uh, husbands, then he does children and parents. How are they each to uh, walk out their relationships in the household? Uh, and then he does uh, slaves and masters. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So we're in chapter six, we're going to look at verses five through nine. Circle back for one to four next week. So here we go. Verses five through nine. uh, This is the word of God for his people. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is not an easy passage to get our heads around. If we are honest, uh, we may say that this is one of those times where we wish the text actually said something different. Um, actually said something stronger, especially if you're reading in the NIV where the word is not bondservant but slave. It's actually the same word in Greek, doulos. But uh, it's, it's a place where we wish that perhaps we may wish that the text said something stronger. Something like the Apostle Paul simply writing and saying, abolish all slavery and then move on to the next topic. You know, often when we come to this passage, we just skip right to saying this is a passage about employers and employees, and we don't even talk about slaves and masters. I think that's a valid application, and I'm going to make that application in a bit, because it it does have to do with how those in authority at work are to respond to those under authority, and how those under authority in working conditions are to respond to those over them. So I think there is a valid application, but we can't just jump there without commenting on the context into which Paul writes and recognize uh, our own historic context and how it probably hinders us 
from understanding this passage. A couple comments on this about Paul's context that he's writing. This is the first century he's writing into in the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman culture. And the first thing we want to say about this is that we must differentiate the slavery from 17th to 19th century America with the slavery of first century uh, in the Roman Empire. In the first place, a profound difference is that Roman slavery was not based on, in any way, on race. American slavery, which grievously was supported by many Christians, created a narrative that there was a fundamental ontological, the nature of their being, there was a fundamental physical, uh, even at a soul level, difference between a black person and a white person, a black person being inferior, the narrative went. And, and this had to be concocted in order to justify in minds, in Christian minds even, the dehumanizing practice of slavery. The practice of slavery in the Roman world had nothing to do with dehumanizing a person or a race uh, based on the color of their skin. The practice of the Roman slavery also was not the result of what the Bible calls man-stealing. It wasn't stealing people, kidnapping people, and then selling them to someone else. The practice of of, uh, stealing someone... Uh, putting them, for instance, on a ship and moving them from one continent to the other, the practice of stealing someone and then selling them is completely forbidden in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a practice that is punishable by death if you do that in the Scripture. So that was the case in our country. That was not the case of what's going on when Paul is addressing slaves or bondservants in the first century. So we have to think about this because on a scale of evil, the practice in our own country was far more evil than what is going on in the first century in Rome. We can't superimpose our historical experience of slavery with the practice of slavery in Ephesus and and read the text through those eyes. As a matter of fact, the ESV makes this point. I don't know if you've ever read the preface to the ESV. It's interesting. The preface to the ESV is only two and a half pages, but this is such a big issue. The issue of slavery gets three paragraphs in the preface of the ESV, and I'm going to read you a few comments of what they say. It says, you may be troubled when you see, that this is written by the, the, those who translated from the Hebrew and Greek text into English, a committee of scholars who translated the, the version that we're reading, the ESV. So they write this about their translation. They say, you may be troubled when you see words like slave, servant, and bondservant. You will likely wonder if the Bible approves of the sort of slavery that existed in the United States and other nations in past times, and that still exist in some nations today. The Bible condemns such slavery many times, and it often explains how people in these situations should be treated. Uh, Another couple paragraphs down, it says, The New Testament uses the Greek word doulos to describe people in this situation. The ESV translates the word as slave when someone had little hope of becoming free. 
The ESV translates the word as bondservant when someone could gain freedom by paying a set price or by serving for a set length of time. It translates the word servant when a person simply worked for someone else. So you see the, the issue they have in translation. The word is doulos in Greek, and yet it'll be translated three different ways. Slave, when someone had no chance really of freedom. That would have been what we would know as slavery in the U.S. Bondservant, which is a condition where someone could gain and actually had hope and likely would gain their freedom. And then the word servant, which is not uh, just a person who is, uh, you know, a servant in that way. So this is really important for us to understand. Otherwise, we will read this and make wrong conclusions. Like many people who've uh, critiqued the church or even leave the church with words like, well, the Bible supports slavery. That's simply not true. That's simply reading a historic American situation into the text and saying that's what Paul is addressing. Paul's addressing something different. So what is he addressing? Well, In Paul's day in the Roman Empire, it's estimated in Ephesus, for instance, that a third of the people, one-third of the population, were slaves or bondservants. People found their way into slavery through a number of different means. Um, They weren't kidnapped and sold. That was not what was happening. Uh, One way was to pay off a debt. If you couldn't pay for your debt, then you sort of worked your debt off in service to someone else. Some of them were prisoners of war. Some of them, and this is surprising to us, but some of them actually volunteered into slavery uh, as an opportunity to raise their position in life. It provided some opportunities for work that they might not have on their own. Now, to be sure, many slaves in Paul's day suffered uh, terribly and did menial work for sure. However, many had significant responsibilities. Slaves were paid for their work, and slaves often carried positions of standing in the culture. Slaves were doctors. Slaves were accountants. Oftentimes, they were managers. The Bible word might be steward, where they would manage uh, the owner's entire uh, property, all of uh, his possessions. They would serve as sort of an, of an overseer of all the affairs, business affairs of the household. They were teachers. And because of this, they were often more educated than their owners. In urban areas, we learn that most slaves, perhaps not all, but almost all slaves, attained freedom by the age of 30 because they could or they earned money and could buy their freedom. Now, I am not affirming or supporting or minimizing uh, slavery in the first century. Uh, it is true that some were treated as family, but it's also true that others were treated horrifically at times, and ultimately all were owned by another human being, and that is simply evil. It was an evil system. Uh, Paul is seeking to speak to believers who are part of that economic household system and apply the gospel. It would simply be impossible for Paul to overturn an ingrained societal practice in the Roman Empire where a third of the people uh, served as bondservants, and, and, and virtually no one questioned the practice 
whatsoever. But Paul does disrupt the system. He disrupts the system by calling Christians to act differently, including the masters. And by doing so, he he sows the seeds of the destruction of slavery in antiquity. Because as the Roman Empire becomes increasingly Christian, the practice of slavery subsides in the ancient world. Well, Paul begins by addressing these bondservants directly. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, you may read that and say, well, doesn't that just undo everything you just said? He said to obey them with fear and trembling. But we have to look at where does Paul use that exact language elsewhere? What does he mean by this? Is he talking about cowering before someone? Is Is he talking about sort of a shaking posture of trembling before someone? I don't think he is. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, when I came to you, I was in weakness before you. I was in fear and trembling. So Paul uses the exact phrase to describe his own behavior as an apostle when he ministered to the Corinthians. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, when I came before you previously, I came with a humility before you. I came as a servant before you. I came with deference or respect. It's very clear. Paul didn't just come in and, and uh, they were a mess, the Corinthian church, but he didn't just come in as some, uh, you know, authoritarian telling you. He came with a deference to them and a respect. In 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about the Corinthian church receiving Titus. And he said, when Titus came to visit you, he was refreshed Why was he refreshed? He was refreshed because you were obeying God and received him with fear and trembling. Now, is he saying Titus felt really encouraged in loving you because when he walked in the room, everybody got on the ground and trembled before him? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you didn't defy Titus, but you received him. You welcomed him. You deferred to him. You honored him. So this phrase, when Paul uses it elsewhere in the New Testament, means something like a a respectful deference or a responsive submission, we could say. But his charge to bondservants is far more profound because he doesn't just say, obey your earthly masters. He's saying, you have a higher master. That's what he says here. He's saying the point is that as a Christian, you have reoriented your entire life so that everything is centered on Christ. And your fundamental identity now is servant of Christ. This is revolutionary. He's saying to them, you you don't have an earthly master that is in charge of you or your future. You do not have an earthly master that calls the shots over your life. Now, he's going to say the same thing to the masters in a minute as well. You are subject to Jesus Christ, the Lord over all, the Lord of the universe. So he says, obey these earthly masters, and the adjective earthly is telling, isn't it? Obey this sort of earthly master because you have an eternal master, an ultimate master, one that master will answer to and will be judged by. You obey him with a sincere heart as you would Christ. He goes on to say, not by the way of eye service, but as a bondservant of Christ. So he's saying, hey, bondservants, do what you are told, 
with a sincere heart because you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's reorienting the definition of their position, of their role, of their identity. He is putting on them a new identity. You don't work for a master, or we could translate this fairly into our culture, I believe, because we're talking about authority here. You don't work for a boss or a company or a corporation or even a client. You work for Jesus. This is the point, is that everything is being reoriented in our lives when we meet Christ, and we have a new boss who's not the same as the old boss. He really is a new boss. You're part of the kingdom of God. You serve a king, and his benevolent lordship transforms your life, including how you relate to your daily activity. Your work has a new purpose. It has a new goal. It has a new meaning because you have a new master. You are bondservants of Christ, verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. This might not be the way you would have scripted your life, he would say to the bondservants, but you are acting from your heart to serve Jesus rendering, verse 7, service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. View all that you do for the Lord and not to man. And here is where we can start to begin to make some application to ourselves as free people, because he says whether you are bondservant or free, it's all the same, verse 8, in terms of your serving Christ. We can make some application to ourselves. Now follow the argument. If Christ is your master, obey with fear and trembling because you are obeying him. Uh, work with a sincere heart, verse 6, uh, verse 5 rather, that is do your best for your master or your boss and for others as you would for Christ because you really work for him. He goes on to describe what that means, verse 6, and I think we can make application or this, this feels very relevant. Don't just work by way of eye service as people pleasers. What does that mean? He's saying that you, to be an eye service, to work the way of eye service is to work hard when the boss's eye is upon you and when the boss's eye is no longer upon you to be a slacker, to do whatever it is when the boss isn't around, to be diligent when you're being watched, to scroll through social media when the boss is not in the room. And and what he's saying is you need to work sincerely for Christ because Christ is always watching. He's always present So we're to do the will of God, he says here, from our heart for Jesus Christ, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's happening, regardless of what we're doing, regardless of if we're in our dream job or not. We we are, some of these people would have had very good jobs. Uh, Some of them would not have. But in any case, he is saying we do all for Jesus Christ. This is so true of human nature. We all have a tendency to act one way around a certain group of people, especially someone who has some kind of authority over us. 
Uh, We act one way around our boss to impress them, but when they're gone, we act differently. This is human nature. That everything, when, when, the, when the honchos, the head honchos from corporate come to the office, everything was really different that week. Everybody acted differently. Everybody was on the best behavior. I have never seen my boss like that before uh, than when somebody from corporate was visiting the office. But when they were gone, it's back to normal. This is human nature. Uh, and, and so he's saying here, no, you're, you answer to Christ. You answer to Christ. Whenever I tell somebody what I do, they ask me and don't know. They, they, it, this always happens. They always kind of click into, oh, oh, well, you know. I recently read a pastor says, I love it when people cuss in front of me, knowing what I do. Because it just means you're being real. You're not saying I'm trying to act one way around this guy who's a spiritual person. And uh, as soon as they're gone, I will be who I am. But we all have that. We, we act a certain way around our parents. Or uh, we act a certain way around our boss. Or someone that we deem uh, as authority in our life. Or someone we deem as we want to impress them. Or something like that. But God's word revolutionizes that attitude and says, you know what, you really, you you do have a job. You should work for your uh, boss and you should seek to do genuine, sincere work to make them and your company a success or to make your clients a success. You really should do that. But ultimately, you're working for Christ, whether you were a bondservant or free. Verse 7, we are rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, <clears throat> whether he is a bondservant or is free. So regardless of your status, regardless of your work, it is all for Christ who sees and who rewards, who pays back. Now, he doesn't say here, Um, whether that's now or whether that's in eternity. Uh, I think probably both. We could find scriptures that talk about that. But But the main idea is you're working for Christ. Consider how you would approach your job tomorrow differently if when you showed up to the office or the store or the, or the job site, um, or to the airplane if you're traveling for your work to go somewhere else. What would you do if you showed up and Jesus was in the room? What about when you go home, students to do homework, if you've got homework for school tomorrow, and you're doing your, what if Jesus is sitting right there by you while you do your homework? Or maybe we're doing household work, household chores, or you're caring for children. Whatever your job is, what, what, whatever your roles are, Well, the point of this text is he is in the room. That's the whole point. He is in the room, and all the work is for him. See, we can see that Jesus doesn't care about my history homework. That's what we can sometimes feel with. You know, Jesus doesn't care about this. As long as I don't do something grievous, as long as I'm not embezzling funds from the company, Jesus doesn't really care about this. But the text says, no, no, that's not true. He cares about it all. Matter of fact, he is your supervisor. You answer to him, and he rewards our work. That's what the text says. It's it's an amazing, revolutionary concept uh, that that changes how we view work and how we view life. 
And now here's where it's subversive because it applies to the boss as well. So Paul's not endorsing a system here. He is working in a system subversively to ultimately overthrow the system over time as people are converted. So this is, this is what he says, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So he's saying to anyone in this system who happened to be a member of this church reading this, uh, so he addresses the bondservants in Ephesus, then he addresses the master and he said, you're supposed to act the same way. Now what does that mean? Wouldn't the whole system break down if they're honoring the servant and deferring? And yeah, I think that's part of the idea. You do the same. In other words, you realize that you have a boss who's in the room, who's watching, that you work for as well. You don't, you don't, uh, you work for Jesus. He is your boss. You're submitted to him. And everything else in the letter would apply to how you are treat, to treat this bondservant that is serving you. Think about things we read, like back in uh, chapter 4. This would apply to someone who had servants in their home, bondservants in their home, in their business, in their fields, um, you know, in, in, on their farm, uh, in their in their. Uh, in the marketplace where they are selling from their booth, or it wouldn't be a booth, but you know their little their little area that they sell their goods from, whatever it is, whatever their work is, this is how they are to treat them. Uh, chapter four says that that we that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, of how we have been called. We're to walk with all humility and gentleness and patience. And bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So they're to relate to the bondservant with that kind of humility and gentleness. And we are to submit to one another. There could be a case where as a Christian, they are to submit to the servant. What if the servant's a teacher? What if the servant's a doctor? What if the servant's an elder in the church? There to the, there would be context in this uh, that Paul would imagine that God would imagine this context where they are submitted to the bondservant. They too, they are not a special class. They are to act in a manner that I am treating this person like I would treat the Lord. This goes beyond the this goes beyond the the uh, uh, the golden rule. He's calling these masters, or these, in our context, perhaps bosses, he's calling them to something greater than the golden rule. The golden rule is treat them the way you would want to be treated. He's saying treat them like they're Jesus. Because you will answer to Jesus for how you treat others. This is revolutionary revolutionary. He's not coming out and instantly uh, doesn't have the power in the, in the society to absolve a societal practice. But he can say, as those who are in the world, those who are in this society, and at this point, a very, very, very small, fledgling, uh, kind of off on the margins little group. It's going to change over time. But at this point, they're this small, off in the margins, meeting in some houses, probably in Ephesus, without the cultural power to overturn a system, didn't live in a democracy, couldn't vote their guy in to change the, none of that. 
They live under a Caesar. But in that context, he is saying, I'm going to apply the gospel in such a radical way that it's going to revolutionize how you relate to everyone and how you do all of your work so that Jesus is ever before you. And you are acting as you are doing your work for him, unto him, and you are treating others as if they are him. It's revolutionary, uh, and it certainly undermines the practices of the day. Just as we today are to undermine the idols and the various structures in the workplace uh, that could be harmful and ungodly today, we're to undermine them as well by acting in the power of the gospel. So how does this have relevance for us? I probably made some points uh, that maybe hopefully you've been able to draw to from already. Um, how does this have relevance for us? Here's a principle that I think is very key here, even though we're in a distant, distant cultural situation, um, trying to acknowledge that and acknowledge today both to be true to the text. Uh, but here's how it's relevant for us. This passage teaches there is no unimportant work. I don't know what you do, but you're not a bondservant. I'm not a bondservant. We have our freedom. The cultural story in our world is that our work defines us, that your worth is tied to what your work is. Your identity is tied to what your work is. So, for instance, when we ask what someone does, they don't answer by describing what they do. They answer with a statement of identity. What do you do? People don't say, I teach students. They say, I am a teacher. That's my identity. What do you do? No one says, I balance the books. They say, I am an accountant. And and in our culture, depending on how you answer that question, instantly people can place you and rank you with a societal ranking. And that is totally underturned here, overturned here, because what he says is, hey, bondservants, you are a bondservant of Jesus, the Lord of the universe. He totally reverses their, their status so that their status is not tied to what they do, but for whom they do it, Jesus Christ. Klein Snodgrass in his commentary on Ephesians says, what Paul tells slaves is directly relevant. Our jobs and our role in the culture do not determine who we are. We live in and to and for Christ in all that we do. Moreover, our value and identity do not derive from our circumstances, but from Christ. By directing, listen to this, by directing all our actions to Christ, all of life, even the most mundane parts, is elevated to meaning and service to God. Because of this text, we can truly say that whatever we do has value and meaning because it is elevated because it is done for Christ. So he takes in this culture the bondservant and says, do what you do for Jesus, and you are a bondservant not to 
fill in the blank of some master. You are a bondservant of Jesus. And whatever you do good, he says, whatever you do, you will receive back from the Lord. You may be getting a measly pay in this context, saving up to buy your freedom. You may be getting big pay in your job. But whatever you're paid, there is a greater pay. And that is the favor, the blessing of God for our work. So what he's saying is that whether you are in your dream job or whether you are far from your dream job, we find meaning when we drill down into our motivation for whom am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And it really communicates that all work is meaningful. He is elevating the status of the bondservant and saying there is value and meaning. Don't just do what you're doing for eye service to impress your boss. You do it for Christ. There is no unimportant work. The why I do this question is so valuable. In this month's uh, issue of Entrepreneur Magazine, there is a lengthy, lengthy article on meaningful work. What is meaningful work? It's fascinating. It runs through the Protestant work ethic to the Industrial Revolution to where we are now and and talks about meaning and work and ties it particularly to what's happened in the last two years in the pandemic. And there's a quote in there that starts off talking about this person who's in personnel services who helps people find work, placement service. And uh, she says this, I told my manager, this is during the pandemic, trying to find people jobs. I have been on more calls with people crying than ever before in my entire career, Lincoln says. People were fed up, overwhelmed. It was different. They became very introspective around what's important, what matters, what's sacred to me, what impact do I want to have, what do I want my legacy to be, am I prioritizing the right things in my life, end quote. The author says, in other words, people have become more interested in meaningful work. They wanted better answers to the questions, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Paul is answering here and saying meaning to what we do is tied to the goal, to the purpose, to, to, for whom we do it. Meaning is tied there so that the bondservant could have meaning and you and I can have meaning in the most mundane of activities. I, since I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, and I've just been, I just adopted a mantra. I guess that's not Christian, is it? But, uh, well, this is a Christian mantra. And uh, I don't really know what a mantra is, but at, at any rate, it's something I'm repeating, okay? So this repeated phrase, I've been saying this throughout my day, whispering in my mind, I'm, I'm doing this for you, Lord, whatever it is. I'm just trying to connect that. Okay, I'm driving somewhere. Lord, I'm doing this for you. I'm engaging with someone in a store. I'm doing this for you. I'm praying. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing a household chore. I'm doing this for you. I'm making a phone call to someone to encourage them. I'm doing this for you. I'm trying to connect all that I'm doing because that's what this text says. I'm doing this for you, Lord. This is for you. The passage teaches us not only is there no unimportant work, all work matters, there's no unimportant people. There's no unimportant people. We are not to embrace society's ranking system. What does Paul say in this passage? 
He says in verse 9, masters do the same to them. You're the person with power. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. What's he saying? Folks in Ephesus may think you're powerful. God's not impressed. God's not impressed. You're no different than the bondservant. The ground is level before God. There are no unimportant jobs, unimportant work. There are no unimportant people. Klein Snodgrass, again, in his commentary on Ephesians, makes the point that we don't have slavery in our culture. People are trafficked, I suppose, sex slaves and such. So there is some trafficking of humans. But generally speaking, as a society, uh, we don't permit that. That's illegal. So we don't permit that legally. We don't have slavery in our culture. He says this, and this is just like a slap in the face to me. I was like, whoa. He says, but we do have service personnel. He says, you can learn a lot about a person, about how they think and relate to service personnel. Ask anyone in the service industry how they've been treated the last two years. Ask them how it's going. We've got a, in the heart of the pandemic, I don't think we're at the heart of it anymore. I don't know where we are, but at the heart of it, there was a whole genre of viral videos with Karens going off on grocery workers, flight attendants, landscapers, restaurant servers, retail workers, just going off. It was a whole genre. Respect and gratitude for the service rendered to other people is at an all-time low in this culture. It's demands. It's looking at someone and minimizing their value because they're not getting to you in the time you think they should be serving you. One author said, you know, this passage should shape how we treat people in the service industry. What does God say to bond servants? How does he treat them? How does he elevate them? In this passage. Sadly, the author says, we chew out service workers when we're unsatisfied. We view them as faceless numbers when it's time to downsize. We presume upon them like they don't matter. And he goes on to say, quote, our Christian witness depends on how we treat them. We must relate to them as if we were relating to Christ. There's no unimportant jobs there's no unimportant people. I was recently at an assisted living center, my wife and I, and there were a couple young 20, 22-year-old workers, caregivers, they called them, which means that they help seniors, often forgotten, alone, seniors with basic functional needs. They help them get dressed. They bathe them. They change their diapers if that's the, the situation that the senior finds himself in. It's not glamorous. It's not glorious. And uh, we were there, and there was a couple of them kind of off to the side. My wife just went over to them and just honored them. Thank you for what you're doing. It matters. It's meaningful. Thank you for caring for people who can't care for themselves. I just want you to know I appreciate that. Their shoulders went back, stood tall. 
because no one recognizes what they do. But the Lord says there are no unimportant people. This is our witness in a day that we are living in. Our witness is to recognize and thank others. Final point I need to wrap up is that God is our constant audience. There are no un, there's no unimportant work. There's no un, unimportant workers. God is our audience. We act one way around people we want to impress and differently around others, and we think it doesn't matter, but this passage says you live all of life quorum Deo, that is, before the face of God. He is always present. He always sees. He is always accountable. And we do all of our work, our leisure, our eating, our living, our loving, our recreating, we do it all before the face of God, and we do it all for Jesus. That's what the passage teaches. This should ask us, lead us to ask some honest questions when we think about work, and here's how I'm going to wrap up. I did this one other time in Ephesians. One of the books I've been using is in a commentary by a guy named Scotty Smith. He's a, um, uh, he's a retired PCA pastor, and he's written a book on uh, Ephesians, and he had a list of questions I thought was great. I'm just going to end this. If we were in community groups talking about sermons, these are the questions we'd be using. We're doing something different in our community groups right now, but it relates to this topic for sure. Um, He gave two lists. Here's questions for those in authority in the workplace. If you're a supervisor, if you manage, if you have any leadership role, does my leadership reflect the servant love of Jesus? Do I treat my employees and or staff with equal respect, care, and fairness? Here's a killer. Would I want to work for me? We can take this whole section and apply it. Last week, what Caleb talked about, would I want to be married to me? Next week, would I want to parent me? Would I want to parent me? Here, would I want to work for me? How am I working to break down the economic barriers, the power imbalances, which is what this passage is about, and social segregation that often exists in the workplace? What am I doing about that? Do I position myself in the company as one who serves, or do I position myself as one who is powerful and important and must be celebrated? Am I awed by and grateful for Jesus' servanthood towards me, wanting to be like him? Do I realize how Jesus has served me, the God of the universe? And is that informing how I treat others? Am I aware minute by minute of my master in heaven who isn't impressed with status or position but cares for people as people? These are good questions if I have a responsibility to oversee others. Here's questions for those under authority in the workplace. We're all over authority in, in, in life. There's all, we all answer to someone, so we're all under authority at some level. But uh, this is it. Is my heart attitude one of obedience and submission like it is with Jesus? That's what he says. Bond servants, obey your masters as you would Jesus. So is my heart towards my boss, supervisor, the way it is towards Jesus? because he's the one I'm ultimately answering to. Do I go about my work as a God-pleaser who is secure in Christ, not as an insecure or scheming people-pleaser? Am I doing it for the attention of others or for the glory of God? Would my coworkers say I bring respect, cheerfulness, and concern for others into the workplace? 
if I were the boss, would I be thankful for me as a worker? (laughs) Would I be thankful for me? That works for marriage and parenting as well. Would I be thankful for me as a spouse? Would I say, man, I got a winner in him? Or would I say, okay, and you get the point. Am I awed? My wife will be in the second service. Am I awed by and grateful for my true master, Jesus, and see my work as part of the dignity and privilege of serving him? Do I remember as I work that I will receive back from the Lord a reward that far exceeds what my employer is giving me? What might change if I was more secure in the approval and love of God and pursued it first instead of living for approval from people at work? These are great questions. How, Lord, how am I walking out what you've called me to walk out? That all the questions revolve around the same idea. Lord, how can I do this for you? How can I keep you in view as I answer to authority, as I exercise leadership uh, and, and am authority in the lives of others? How can I do that empowered by the gospel? How can I do that so that my day is filled with this is for you, Lord, and it all matters, and all the people I interact with, they matter as well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.